Trash on our cast. People gather around a table and we discuss the films that you will probably most of the time discuss in film studies course this week because we're looking at Carrie. Uh, very, very excited to be talking about this film uh, with my illustrious co host. Let's go ahead and identify ourselves right here, right now. Ma'am, who are you? My name is Alexander Bohannon, and uh, pimples are the Lord's way of chastising you. <laughs> <laughs> I was chastised a lot. Yeah, I think we all were. <laughs> Late bloomer I, I needed to be squad really... in mm. here. Nobody misses high school. No. Okay, sir, who are you to my right? I am Arthur Gordon, and these are godless times. They are indeed. <laughs> my name is Dustin Sells, and I look at you, Arthur, and I can only think Satan, which... That's fair. Yeah. yeah. And so uh, we're here talking about Carrie. It's going to be a good time. And again, this is a film that probably does find its way into uh, the odd film studies course from time to time, although I have found in my own studies, that uh, there's a certain assumption that you've seen this movie, and so it tends not to make its way on the syllabus because of, you know, assumed familiarity. Yeah. Hmm. Just FYI, just fun news, I guess, for you all. So uh, in case you're tuning in for the Good Trash genre cast for the very first time, this is how we do this. Uh, we begin with a synopsis from the voice of the cinema, and then we move into our quick thumbs-up, thumbs-down reviews, which are all spoiler-free because this is an analysis show, not a review show, and there will be spoilers later on. Uh, then we will play our game. After our gameplay, we move directly into our analysis, which is a spoiler zone, so you have been warned. So, without any further ado, Mr. Arthur Gordon, voice of the cinema, let's go ahead and hear that synopsis, please. Carrie White, a shy, friendless teenage girl who is sheltered by her domineering, religious mother, unleashes her telekinetic powers after being humiliated by her classmates at her senior prom. That's the whole movie. That is the whole movie. Yeah. That's it. That, that totally makes sense. And it's, it's an interesting movie, and it, I mean, there's a whole lot going on with it. That's a good synopsis of it. Uh, and so, yeah, I was kind of amazed at how long it took to actually get to the prom sequence. Dude, and yeah. how long the prom sequence actually ran. But, uh, yeah, it's a lot of fun. And so here we go uh, with thumbs up, thumbs down reviews. I'm going to go to you first, Arthur. What do you think? Do you like Carrie? And tell me why. I, uh, for the most part, I do like Carrie. I, th I think it is a really solid um, horror film. Uh, but I do think it all lives and dies on that prom sequence. I, I really do. I mean, that's what the takeaway from this movie is, and I think uh, kind of always has been. Um, but Sissy Spacek is just phenomenal here. Um, her performance from beginning to end is is so endearing, and she's so great at uh, kind of being this timid, meek, uh, sheltered kid who is scared of the entire world around her. Um but she also has this kind of quiet strength because she doesn't trust the other kids and she's willing to kind of stand up for herself when, you know, when, uh, was it Tommy, I think, uh, comes to talk to her at, the, at her house, you know, she kind of yeah. stands up and she's not really willing to back away, but she understands how interacting with these other people um, will cause her mom to come down on her. And that's where the fear is, is, is her mom played by Piper Laurie, um, who's doing a interesting job um interesting job is definitely a word yeah, for it <laughs> I mean, it's kind of this over-the-top performance but i don't know that it ever really works uh for me um I, I i really think sissy spacek just owns this movie i mean john travolta's fine uh nancy allen's fine uh the teacher's pretty good um but uh for the most part i i don't know that there's very much memorable about this movie outside of that prom sequence uh but that being said that prom sequence is money mm -hmm. um I'd read something recently about De Palma saying that he is a director who is really good at putting together a set piece, uh, but the scenes usually outshine the movies themselves, and that's the case here, I think. Um, he is definitely a student of film, and you see his influence in every movie uh, on, his, on his sleeve. You know, the Hitchcock, the G.I.O. stuff, the other kind of classic Hollywood stuff, um, it's, it's, it makes his way into all of his movies. And I think kind of overrides his own style uh, because we see the greats that are playing and we kind of want to watch the greats rather than watch De Palma. And, and that's really where I am with Carrie, I think. Um, 
it's fine and, and and it's memorable and I think for a good reason. Um, you know, Carrie's kind of become this horror icon and it's all just because of that sequence. She's not really a monster uh, in any way. She's just been pushed to the edge and she kind of strikes back. So I I like it. I don't mind watching it and I'd probably watch it again. I mean, I've seen it a couple times and I'll I'll revisit it. Um, but for the most part, it's 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 so-so, I, I think, for the most part. Okay, well, fair enough. Thank you very much for that, Mr. Arthur Gordon. What do you think, Alexander Bohannon? Do you like Carrie? And tell me why. Yeah, I, I actually like Carrie, um, but I don't have, like, a deep, deep uh, affinity for it. I thought I had seen this in its entirety before when I was little on TV, but apparently not because I there was like, oh, some of this is a surprise. Um, of course, you know, the 70s Bush was not on the TV, so it's like, but so I was very surprised by that. that uh, is- yeah. Surprising. Um, so I thought the film itself, I, I like, I really agree with a lot of, if not most of Arthur's review. And it, it does make me want to watch, you know, Dario Argento and, you know, people of that ilk more so than kind of just watch the rest of Carrie. But the stuff that he shines on really does a good job. And I think at its core, there is something, especially as a woman uh, who is, you know, went to high school and like dealt with, you know, blossoming womanhood issues. It's like, I mean, I, I that's something that I'm like, wow, there's something that you really it's it's kind of hard to articulate. Uh, luckily, my own experiences were not as traumatic as Carrie White's in that regard. But there is something um, the empathy that Sissy Spacek uh, can uh, elicit from you. It, it's just so real and palpable to the point where when she's you know killing everybody, I'm just like get him girl <laughs> like you know. <laughs> so it's uh, like I thought that the the mother's performance. I really wanted way more. Uh, the book takes uh, like the book is so interesting definitely read it uh it i think it does a good job getting that same high points but the mom is cranked up to like 20 in the book just in terms of how crazy she is and i feel like i've met real world religious mothers that were way more crazy than that uh performance so for her to be so sheltered with where she's like you know at a six and for you know sissy spacek to be at like a 12 I, yeah, I feel like that needed more punch up, but she still steals steals the movie. And um, yeah, I, I think that I love the ending too. Just like mm-hmm. that dream sequences. I think I actually remember that part because I'm like, isn't there a hand? And then yeah, sorry, spoilers. I mean, I figure everyone's probably seen this one before, but you're probably okay. Yeah, but so anyway, I, I think that the film is solid. It's definitely worth a visit. Definitely, if you're a student of film, you should see it. Um, and uh, yeah, if you have an interest in, I don't know, just this kind of horror from from this time period, I mean, it's a, a must-watch. All right. Well, thank you very much for that, Miss Alexander Bohannon. I also like the movie. It is a bit slow in bits. Uh, there is uh, a real sort of antipathy because I really always want to like John Travolta when I see him, and he's not playing a good guy. And he's playing a decidedly bad guy, very rapey uh, yeah. kind of guy. Gross. And uh, he's actually rapier in the book, which is, you know, and I mean, not rapier, but it, the, the, the sort of the menace is a little stronger uh, there in the book. And uh, so I do like that that's toned down, but it is, there's a certain, because of his star persona, there's a, there's a certain distantiation that happens because of that. Uh, but otherwise, yeah, the film's really, really uh, solid. It's a, it's a just great little, uh, you know, American Gothic little horror tale uh, with a little bit of paranormal telekinesis stuff going on in it. I like the sort of interesting conversation with religious fundamentalism and uh, what's going on. Although I have to say, this um, religious iconography, you can see De Palma does not know what's going on I know American religious experience. Dude, yeah. <laughs> Be- because um, the, the, the sort of Pentecostals that are being, I think, depicted here by the whites uh, would not be into much of the iconography. Not. In it. They, would be, they would be absolutely opposed to that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. They would be much more into kitschy, precious moments kind of stuff all over, right? <laughs> yeah. Footprints. Footprints and Warner Salman paintings of Jesus, yeah. you know, and that, that yeah. sort of thing. And so uh, he's bringing in this very sort of, Catholic, very Catholic yeah. sort of iconographies, and again, very disturbed. I mean, there's some. I mean, the, the creepy Jesus inside the prayer closet, and the uh, Jesus that's in the uh, painting that's behind the mirror are the worst Jesus paintings ever. They they are not for religious devotion. They are to scare small children. Jesus uh, with glowing eyes. The, yeah, <laughs> what is going on there? And so there there is a sense in which uh, Stephen King has a deeper understanding of the American religious experience, and so he's able to 
you know, get into that world a little bit. And so uh, it's truer to form. And there's a there's a there's a lack of truth, you know, to that. Um, I do agree that uh, Piper Laurie definitely could be a bit more batty. And uh, batty in like specific idiosyncratic, you know, American revivalist, Pentecostalist ways uh, that she's not. And so I I wish I wish for a little bit more of that. But that prompting, I'm telling y'all. Oh, it's money. It just just kills it. And so that being said, the source material, I think, actually is what outweighs the direction here. Um, And I I don't mean that to fault the poem. I like the poem generally. But this is one of those things where I don't think he was the right director for this movie. Mm. I think somebody I, I think a Paul Schrader would have crushed this you know at the time if they and he wasn't getting a whole lot of directing work though he was mostly still doing screenwriting at the time but um i would love to have seen paul schrader's crate uh crater paul (laughs) paul schrader's carry paul schrader's i don't even know what that is is crater the fall up to canyons (laughs) the canyons i will defend um it's a weird movie but i will defend it uh, but nonetheless, so I, I do like it though quite a bit. But there is a way in which uh, I, I'm I'm sort of just as a viewer, it, it bothers me to see John Travolta in that particular role. Uh, it bothers me a little bit to see the way in which uh, the iconography of the religious experience is sort of thrown in the blender. Um, the way Piper Laurie does not quite tone up her uh, performance, and it's something we were talking about off mic about Sissy Spacek uh, is that Carrie's supposed to be pretty ugly, yeah. And uh, as you mentioned, Alex, and Sissy Spacek is hot, I yeah. Mean, she looks like a model. Jeez. <laughs> it's really the she's all that of horror films. Yeah. yeah. It is the she's all that of horror yeah. films. That is fantastic. And I th- I mean, moving up to the remake in 2013, I, I do think uh, Chloe Grace Moretz is an even bigger misfire yes. than Sissy Space. Yeah, I haven't seen the remake. Yeah. I saw it. And yeah. 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 It, do they get the religious crap better? I don't remember. I know it's Julianne Moore who's playing the mom, but I can't remember. I think I do remember liking Julianne Moore yeah. quite a bit better than Piper Laurie in the role. And not again, I don't think it's because of Piper Laurie so much as it is the a direction. script. Yeah, yeah. yeah it, it, it's a script problem and a direction problem uh, for that. So anyway, uh, there you go. Those are our thoughts initially on our experience of watching Carrie. We're kind of yeah. Okay, um, so it's it, the needle is past halfway uh, towards the good. We would say that, so it's probably still fresh on our um, good trash thermometer here. Uh, but <laughs> that being said, uh, that's where we stand. Now's the part of the show where I ask Dalton to do things, and he's not here. So I'm going to ask Arthur to do things. Can you tell people how we can have a social media conversation about Carrie or other films that we discuss? Heck yeah! You can find us on Twitter at good underscore trash. Uh, you can find us on Facebook slash uh, good trash media. Um, if you have any long-form questions, send them over to GoodTrashGenreCast at gmail.com. Uh, always, you know, rate, review, like, subscribe, iTunes, Stitcher, Internet Radio, you know, your podcatcher of choice. Uh, and if you do feel so obliged to uh, uh, help us keep the lights on and pay some uh, hosting fees, you could do that with uh, Patreon at patreon.com uh, forward slash GTM. Uh, we've got some fun little rewards over there if you uh, donate, uh, but don't feel obliged to do that. Uh, it's It's, you know, one of those things we do. Um, that's, that's that. All right. Well, there you go. Record I, time. I think it is record yeah, time. Yeah, very brief. Um, Substantial less, uh, Bob Barker involved. Um, the, which is, um, well, it is what it is. I'm just going to say that. We miss you, Dalton. Yeah. <laughs> come, I hope you're having fun on vacation. Yeah. yeah. Come back quickly. I think now, though, it is time. It might feel good. It might sound a little something. But damn the game. If it don't mean nothing. What is game? Who got game? Where's the game in life? Behind the game, behind the game. I got game, she got game, we got game, they got game, he got game. It might feel good, it might sound a little something, but fuck the game if it ain't saying nothing. And we're back, your listener, with this week's game, which is three filmmakers that would be influencers on us if we made films. That's right. Three the directors that would influence us if we made films. Brought to you by Carrie. Carrie, I'm glad I was able to synopsis that game title because it's very long. Good job. I sometimes do that. I, I, I do that to mess with... I do that to mess with Dalton, and I forgot he wasn't here. <laughs> you did good, though. Oh, Johnny, I forgot you were there. Um, <laughs> you may go now. Um, moving. That's a Tombstone reference for you, dear listener. So here we go. We're just going to go down the line, as we always do, our popcorn style. Uh, name a director, and what about them that would influence you if you were to make a film today? Alex, you are um, doing a little filmmaking, so I'm yeah, curious totally. to the answers to this. Um, so probably one of my, I mean, we talked about him at length last week on Baby Driver Edgar Wright, he, I, I think he, of all my other picks, probably gets 
like watching him on screen, it's like, oh, someone gets me as a person and how I would um, put together a, a film. And and even though I haven't had a, a chance to really get on the directing reins myself, it's just like seeing that synthesis of um, I, don't, I just like it's not even just having like all pop culture stuff within it. It's just the the extremely British humor, but with the camp. And then also it can have whenever it wants to play serious, it can play super serious. And I just, I, I just love it. And the quick cuts and all that, that um, great, great nonsense. So that's kind of, that's my first pick. Excellent. I like that very much. Mr. Arthur Gordon, what say you for your first pick? Uh, I'm going to commit the Cardinal sin, much like De Palma. And it would probably be Hitchcock. Yes. Uh, I think playing, I, I just enjoy, you know, suspense and thriller so much. And I think if that was the route I'd take, uh, I think you have to have Hitch in the toolkit. Uh, I think you have to be able to use the those methods of suspense that he developed so well and that so many other directors drew from. Um, and, and, you know, they stand the test of time. Uh, all of his films, or most of his films, we were talking about that off air, but, you know, a lot of his films really do stand the test of time. They're still suspenseful, and, and he just found interesting ways to incorporate that. Uh, but not only with suspense, but even with set pieces. Uh, he has such a great eye for uh, doing these kind of grandiose set pieces, you know, the Mount Rushmore and North by Northwest, or even something as simple as the shower scene in Psycho. Um, he's he's just, he was a master uh, in, in putting things together. And so I, I think that would be my first pick. Excellent, excellent. I, I'm going to cheat out of the bag. I'm just I'm Go for terrible it. about okay. this. So here, my, my number first pick is three picks. And the reason why I'm making three picks is because they're all doing exactly the same kind of thing. Um, and this is in the realm of sort of avant-garde experimental filmmaking because I do think if I were a filmmaker, I would definitely want to make narrative features. But I would also like – Scorsese does this thing where he makes narrative stuff and he also makes documentaries as a sort of side other thing that he does. Th th these kind of experimental films would be mine, and they are these found footage uh, kinds of reassembling of films. And so the three filmmakers I want to name are uh, Joseph Cornell, especially his film Rose Hobart. Uh, also, then I want to name um, Philip Solomon and his movie American Falls. And then lastly, I want to name um, Bill Morrison and the movie I just saw just the other night called The Spark of Being. And what they do is they just take these pieces of other bits of old movies, old either narrative films or old bits of uh, home footage, and they recut them together. And they make them into something of a narrative that's a very, very dreamy kind of thing. Uh, Rose Hobart is a great example. It's this east of Borneo, this sort of standard jungle tale kind of movie but what he does is he takes it and makes it into this crazy sort of fever dream uh, by taking most of the narrative bits out of it out tinting the whole thing blue and then uh, using uh, these uh, different sorts of bits of contemporary music on top of it that I, 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 I really am fascinated by these particular filmmakers I see uh, and I don't like what he does and I'm not really a big fan of James Franco but some of his own art installation stuff that he's been doing lately does something like that I'd like to do that but better and and uh, the way I would do that is uh, with the help of uh, Mr. Cornell, Mr. Uh, Morrison, and also uh, Mr. Philip Solomon. And so, though, so that my first pick is like this sort of these three school. This school, these three guys are of a piece. So my cheat's not a real cheat, but it's kind of a cheat. I'm a cheater. All right, moving right along. Number next, Miss Alexandra Bohanna. Who who would you pick? I would uh, pick specifically uh, about. 1980 to 90 Steven Spielberg because I, I just I really like how he in you know his like height prime like all of the movies that I love of his um, they're all having these really great conversations about the nature of families and adventure and but it's like uh, one thing that I constantly uh, regret in our modern uh, you know our modern wave of filmmaking is the lack of that family family uh, adventure film that kind of died in the 80s like you think of the goonies and the princess bride and these are movies that aren't necessarily kids movies but and they're not um something that like adults have to roll their eyes at but they're certainly not marvel movies which i think is what it's kind of been replaced with because it's like that light action pg-13 oh it's okay because they're superheroes and the blood is green or whatever um so i just kind of miss that and i'm and i really just miss that feel and aesthetic and i love i just miss practical very much and so if i were to direct kind of like a big you know action adventure romancing the stone even though i know that's not spielberg like if i were to direct that i would love to like fully lean in and embrace the idea of having you know mostly if not all practical effects and you know just embracing some of the schlock and the fact that you know 
you don't have to tone it down for for kids and you don't have to tone it up for adults just you know making making that movie i think it's been kind of lost of time a bit so absolutely i like that pick yeah. a lot miss alexander bohan and mr arthur gordon what say you what's your number next pick i'm going back and forth in my head on this uh i think i'm gonna say jonathan Demme though oh nice uh i i i i like so much of his visual style and what he does, you know, especially with those kind of point of view shots and, and what that invokes uh, psychologically with the viewer. Uh, but also just his uh, penchant for kind of taking on, I don't want to necessarily say the voice of the voiceless, but kind of, you know, putting minority figures into central roles. You know, I think of Clarice or I think of Philadelphia where he's bringing these light to certain uh, different things and uh, issues, social issues. Uh, and he's just a really solid filmmaker, and uh, he's also really good at making thrillers and suspense as well. I mean, that's you know something in his back pocket. But um, I, I think he's just a very uh, mature and focused filmmaker who's able to uh, put good work on screen, and I, I appreciate that quite a bit. Yeah, I like Demi a lot. I just love that, that close-up work he does. It's yeah. just is is really marvelous um, the way he's able to use the close-up to convey emotion and the sort of psychological state of the individual um, that is being filmed. So good selection there as well, Mr. Arthur Gordon. My uh, next pick is also kind of a cheat uh, insofar as it's not a director. <laughs> it's a producer. Okay, uh, okay and, and fair enough. And so, uh, producer at RKO, RKO in the 1940s, I'm talking about Val Luton. I almost and, said Luton. Uh, man, I tell you what, just there's something about about uh, the cat people, curse the cat people. Uh, I walked with a zombie, the leopard yep. man. Uh, these particular films, the way in which they're again, they're they're very gothic, and the way in which they're able to use light and shadow production design in black and white photography. I would want to do it in a, like I would want to make color Val Luton films, and I would want to make again these sort of again very slow, very emotional, very brooding uh, kind of narrative films dealing with these curses, dealing with this idea of uh, what is haunting uh, a particular society. I think there's a lot of things haunting America right now, one of them being racism and uh, the ways in which that could be portrayed on screen using a Luton-esque style would be something that would very much interest me if I were in the business of making movies. Do you think it would work as well in color? I, I think it can. I think it can, but you really have to work hard at it. And I think perhaps you have to uh, go ahead and use digital photography in this particular case. This is one of the things where you get technical with it because black is just black in uh, on uh, regular uh, celluloid film stock. And uh, the, the shades of gray, uh, the shades and the bluishness that sort of finds its way into black. So one of the things that people say to criticize digital photography is the way in which you can't get a true black uh, with it. But I think the fact that you're able to get these different and the way the digital – gives you these sort of grades of black-ishness, that's a way to give you structure, uh, atmosphere, and uh, something of a depth to the image that I think could achieve a similar kind of thing. So you'd absolutely have to film digitally uh, for that and perhaps use something that's more of a janky kind of uh, digital camera in order to get it done. And uh, that would be uh, part of my uh, my technique, I think, if I were trying to imitate some Luton in color. So good question. Um, and I'm kind of surprised I had an answer because I usually don't know technical things. <laughs> nice. Uh, about that kind ten of, out of ten. He's yeah. talking out of his butt. Yeah, ten, uh, out of his butt? Uh, that, that's all the time. Uh, <laughs> moving on, number last. Miss Alexander Bohannon, what is your number last selection for a filmmaker that would influence you if you, aren't, as you do, make films? Uh, yeah, I I mean, I didn't want to just repeat what Arthur said about Hitch, but I mean, Hitch, Hitch is my honorable mention um, for being able to tell uh, the suspenseful story that, you know, has more than just what meets the eye, which I'm a big fan of that. Um, but no, I'm actually going to go with a person that I've only seen one of one of their films because they've only directed officially one of one films and it's Jordan Peele because I feel uh, Peele yes. is kind of he's the new wave of contemporary filmmakers that of diverse voices and experiences that can bring like such uh, different voices together in terms of like using humor to also convey tragedy, um, which I think is all throughout Get Out, which that film is uh, just phenomenal. Um, and I think it does this really, uh, it, it just it melds together like the horror, uh, horror with some of that comedy and a bit of the lighter, but whenever it's psychological, it just, it gets, it gets to you. And I, I would love to have some like meat on your bones, like, you know, the kind of horror that lingers like an odor on you after you exit a theater. That's the kind of affecting work that I'd like to do like him. And I'm looking forward to his amazing career. <laughs> yeah. So Yeah. 
Jordan Peele looking out for you. So outstanding. Yeah. I, I like that selection a lot, and that's the sort of screenwriting I kind of had in mind yeah. for a Val Luton kind of style. So yeah, perfect. I, I really, really like that pick a lot, Alex. Uh, Mr. Arthur Gordon, what is your number last pick? I, I think I'm going to go with John Carpenter. Oh yes, nice, good. Um, I, I enjoy Carpenter's work so much, and I, and I love the way he's able to kind of jump from genre to genre. And Mary's genres, you know, he does sci-fi, then he's going to do sci-fi horror, and then he's going to do an action sci-fi. You know, he's jumping all over the place. He does a pure horror film. Um, but he's just great. Uh, it, it all goes back to, I think, suspense and thrills uh, for me. And he's great at raising the stakes. He's great at ratcheting tension. Uh, and he's also quite inventive. And, and so some of those techniques, I think, are, are still really great. You know, and he, I, I know he's lifting stuff, you know, the... Uh, from Hitch and things like that and from earlier filmmakers, but he marries it into his own style to kind of create new uh, aesthetics and new techniques, and I think it works well. Um, But I just appreciate the way he's able to kind of tell these different stories and maintain his style um, and and really just put out some really enjoyable films that aren't quite what we see anymore, these kind of low-budget, big action films, you know, Escape from New York or They Live, um, that still are able to kind of raise questions about different social issues and uh, critique uh, the uh, policies of the day and the way people are thinking of the day. Absolutely, absolutely. I like that very, very much. Um, I was initially looking to my number last pick to uh, Dario Argento, but I'm actually thinking um, his most recent sort of uh, progeny, which I think is Guillermo del Toro. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, the way in which he's able to use light and uh, the, specifically the way he uses colored light that is not quite as showy and overdone as it, it sometimes is in Argento. I mean, it, sometimes he definitely turns up the pink real hard, you know, or turns up the yellow or the gold really hard. Uh, to do that kind of thing. But I really, really just love the way in which he's able to color code in a way that's a little bit more subdued. And, again, uh, be able to tap into that notion of the gothic uh, as he does so. And uh, this is meticulous, meticulous set design and his obsession with sort of the beautiful um, repulsive. Uh, That uh, kind of work just really, really appeals to me and would definitely inform uh, any filmmaking practice if I ever, you know, I don't know, got time and started doing something along those lines which sounds like madness to me but um anyway there you go dear listener those are our picks and you know kind of what kind of films we'd be making if we were making them and we are in a genre it turns out here at the good trash genre cast who would have thunk it (laughs) which surprises no one so uh there you go uh if you want to give us your selections for directors that would influence you if you made films not your favorite director to watch not your favorite films to watch because i mean if i'm going to say that i'm going to say something along the lines of Steven Spielberg, right? Yeah, yeah, Steven totally. Steven Spielberg movies are just so much fun, but I wouldn't want to make movies like Steven Spielberg. Uh-huh. So we're looking really specifically for those kinds of influences. Send us the, uh, your feedback uh, via those magical means of social media, and we would love to hear that. But now it is time for us to get down to business. Yes, back dear listener and we're going to bring you some spicy analysis to the film carry and there's a whole lot going on and i really i i don't quite know where to start and so i might just do this to initially begin the conversation there's a handful of things i think i'd like to see that we talk about but i'm interested in what you guys see as the most compelling thematic analytical portion of this film because i mean there's obviously lots of stuff going on there's the way in which it interacts with genre there's a way in which de palma is doing his uh, filmmaking thing there's a lot of formal things that are interesting with the film uh obviously feminism and that stuff's going on the religious conversation theological conversation is interesting but if you were saying okay i want to write an essay about this movie um what's the thing you would want to tackle first I think for me, I, I think there are two things that really stand out when I was watching this. The first is uh, just his kind of intertextuality with film history. Yeah. And, I mean, he's definitely a student of film. You know, he's pulling a lot from Hitch. I mean, I think he kind of sees himself as the just obvious next step in, you know, Hitchcock's continued style. And the Hitchcockian films, I think, definitely defines De Palma's work, uh, you know, up to today. Um the other thing, though, is is that idea of religious guilt and sex. And I, I think mm-hmm. that's, you know, the big one that kind of really stuck out to me because I was watching this and I thought, 
you know, I remember it so uh, growing up, you know, in, in the church, you know, that idea of, of, you know, sex and guilt and how those are two are married within a lot of conservative uh, mm-hmm. Christian groups. And so that's what really stood out to me. And I, and I think it navigates that uh, somewhat well uh, and, and presenting that. And, and you know, it, it doesn't really ever seem, you know, over the top or uh, false in any way. Like I, I think it sees that as a real problem uh, in the world. And it, it um, I don't know that it has much to say about addressing it or, you know, how to deal with it because it's really just the setup mm-hmm. uh, to getting us through the end. But I, I, it is a problem within the church um, that's not really addressed, uh, especially in smaller uh, rural areas where churches are still really conservative and um, uh, just kind of legalistic in, in, in their mindset. You know, it, it wasn't probably till college till I heard a pastor say anything about you know, having sex is, is, you know, it is a gift from God, you know, that kind of stuff. And it should be pleasurable, you know, growing up, it was always just the, the guilt aspect and the fear aspect of it. And, uh, the punishment that would yeah, come Piper with it. Laurie's statements about how much she liked it was more of a confession and, yeah. a, right, and, and, yeah. and not a confession of this is who I am and I'm revealing my true self to you. You know, yeah. this is a moment of human openness and honesty. It is as speaking to a confessor, right? Yeah. That this this is my sin is that he took me and I liked it. And yeah. that like this is this is why we know we're bad. And there's something so tragic, I think, in Piper's delivery. I mean, in her performance there and in, yeah. in that kind of rawness that she brings to those moments. I mean, she has some few moments we kind of bat, uh, knocked her a few pegs for her overall performance. But there are a few moments where she really does have some good. Uh, yeah. Whenever segments. she's talking about, you know, how Carrie's had her first blood and now all the boys are sniffing around her like dogs. And I'm like, yes, we need more of this kind of what the fuck in this performance, like, and how, yeah, just how, ah, that, that unnerving. It yeah. is, and like we could have used a little more of that, but I think that moment, and particularly that moment, also really shine for yeah, Piper. Your, your dirty pillows are showing. Yeah. Right. Oh God. That. Yeah. It's gross. Yeah, it's not not cool. And yeah, that that. Okay, so I, let's go ahead and start with that then. Um, I just I I feel like such a tyrant sometimes as I pick. The How could you? And the order. So I, I, I that's why I wanted to throw that well, out. This there. is yeah. your show, isn't it? It is not my show. <laughs> yeah, it is your show. This is, is all your idea. This Good is, trash, dust, and gas. Well, I, I, I. I will say it's my fault for what it's what, your fault. What, yeah, what, whatever's flawed in this show is entirely my fault. Uh, but yeah, so you know, talking about that sort of weird religious aspect and this way in which, uh, and I think this is where part of De Palma's Catholicism comes into play, um, because uh, much of sort of Catholic practice has boiled down into this sort of demonization, this sort of uh, vilification of uh, human sexuality. When she uh, she starts reading this text, right, uh, at, at some point right after she gets the phone call about uh, Carrie having had her period at school and not knowing what to do and being sent home for the day and being excused from gym and and all that stuff, and that awful, awful plug it up scene, um, and uh, just kids are mean. I hate that. Well, um, and that, the fact that that was—if you've read Stephen King's bi- biography—that's like a real thing he experienced from a student. Yeah. Like a student had that happen to them in his class. And I, I mean, it, it really, it doesn't seem that surprising. I mean, a lot of parents just, just do a mind. poor job of telling people what's going on, and if you're sort of sheltered or quiet, you may not, you know, get that locker room well, education. Yeah, totally. But like her ri- also being ridiculed, like uh, in that nature, yeah, the yeah, plug it up stuff. Yeah, the ridicule makes complete sense. But I, absolutely, her reaction makes sense to me too, because I, I assumed you would assume <laughs> you were dying. You had no idea. Yeah. yeah. And so, I mean, that all that all makes sense. But she reads from this text, right? And she talks about how the sin goes into the raven from the blood, and the blood, and then the raven goes off, and the first sin was intercourse. And she's reading, you know, from some sort of like it looks like this sort of Watchtower esque kind of Jehovah's Witness kind of magazine that she's uh, reading from, which again shows the sort of theological, you know, religious identification confusion uh, that the uh, the film lacks. And but. In practice, there is this idea that, um, you know, Christianity teaches that sex is sin, and that has not been the case. Catholic practice has been for uh, priests to be celibate and uh, the uh, veneration of the Virgin Mary and her continued uh, virginity is uh, a false teaching and that has been uh, knocked down by papal bulls since then. But this idea that Mary was a virgin and that therefore was sinless – 
uh, and therefore was able to bear uh, the uh, the the you know the Christ, uh, but also that Mary remained a virgin after that. And then there's even another doctrine that has been built up again, knocked down by the Catholic Church, but people sort of subscribe to this: that Mary was also immaculately conceived. That Mary's Whoa. parents did not engage in intercourse. She because it's how you avoid sin. Because the very act of sex itself is sin. Um, uh, now we don't have to get into like real Sunday school kind of stuff here with this, but um, biblically, the first choice is to say I'm God and God's not. That's the first sin, and it has nothing to do with uh, with sexuality whatsoever. Yes, they were naked and not ashamed, and they were they understood their nakedness. But I think what the, that text is supposed to be suggesting is our limitations when we try to be gods ourselves. That we make lousy gods um, because that of our own demands. And I mean, we could get into some very very th- Sunday school kind of things with that, and I don't want to get into that because I don't think that's really within the scope of the show. But I d- I simply want to speak for. I guess Christianity. Um, and, Go for and, it, and just say that's not what it teaches. You know, at its best. Now, do you find some on the pew level kind of stuff like that? Do you find crazy moms uh, like Alex said earlier that are like Piper Laurie to eleven? Yes, you do. But that has never been the teaching, and the sort of vilification of sexuality and all things sexual being punished. And this is a big thing in horror films, right? What? Who gets punished in horror movies? people who have sex the horny teens the horny teens um, for final their, girl virgin mary yeah yeah for their horniness and uh that this is pretty natural stuff and uh you know the one thing the church has really done wrong now i can knock the church is that we have uh overall talked about the sort of naturalness of what a human being is and what a human being's about and to make them feel guilty about that you know and to put strange strictures upon that and that's never been all that healthy and so, yeah. yeah, that, you know. Well, and it's also the, so if you get now into like, you know, modern purity culture, which is it's a whole other piece uh, for, for like the church and stuff. Um, just the idea, like for me personally, I mean, it's not like my, you know, no one told me about the presence of a period or being a woman, but it definitely, I definitely was handed a, a purity ring after I was, after I got my period saying, okay, you're a woman now, don't have sex. And like you wearing this ring means that you're signing a pact with God to not have sex before you have a husband and pick who that's going to be and get married to that person. Um, But it's that constant, it's not so much that the, yeah, God, it's such a mess because it's like, it's not so much that the church is like, yeah, um, you know, sex is wrong. No, don't have sex. And they're saying don't have sex until in the human brain, it's not as simple as flipping a switch. Oh, sex is okay now. Whenever you go into the, the bedroom, but you've been conditioned for 18, 20, 30 years that sex is wrong, sex is bad. It's not like the literal things they're saying because they're, you know, because I remember Sunday school messages being like, oh, yeah, sex between, you know, you'd have your husband and wife team taught class on sexuality or whatever. It's like, we love sex. We have sex all the time. Look, we're married. We have sex. Don't have sex because you're not married. And so it's not as easy as like, flipping that that switch whenever you actually do the deed and have the ring or whatever and go into the bedroom it's like okay it's time now you know and and that's one thing that i think is kind of interesting um because it is not as legalistic as carrie carrie's mother is saying like at any point ever even when you're married or not married all sex is sin but it the it is the natural evolution of people taking it too far right and what what ends up being sort of vilified, I think, throughout that whole conversation is desire itself. Yeah. And the problem is is that you want and, – and, and I think that's where the instruction is broken, is that, no, you absolutely should want sex. And we're talking about a text that's written in a culture in which you were getting married at 14, 15, 16 years old, not waiting till your mid-20s or your late 30s. I mean this is just unnatural, right? And so to want and, 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 and you know, sort of be you know that raging bowl of hormones that we we all are, um, you know, not just at that age. We just continue to be. But the, to, to be that and then to say, and by the way, to want it, that means you're pervy. So don't be pervy. You're not very pure. Uh, to uh, um, handle it yourself. I'm trying to be as 
uncouth as I possibly can be is another thing that was like the sort of when they had these uh, gender segregated uh, little classes. Oh, yeah, and... where the boys, it's like they talk about don't watch porn with the boys for like that was like every church conference I ever went to. Right. It's, it's like a big it's... don't talk, watch porn. Don't session. watch porn for the boys and girls that put clothes on. Yes. Right. Yes. Yeah. How and... to be a modest Christian woman. Yep. How to be a mo- yeah. You know, because apparently it's, you know, <sighs> It's your fault yeah. if, if boys are basically what we've evolved to be as human beings, right. you know, and then somehow it's you're to blame if it arouses, arouses, uh, just we'll simply say yeah. the word arouses uh, other people. And they're like, no, this is, this is fundamentally problematic. And I, I do think the film does a pretty good job of diagnosing that as, you know, just broken, backward, and not helpful uh, for a human being to live very well in the world. Right. Right. Um, one thing I found really interesting, and I think we talked we talked about it a little bit earlier, um, is so De Palma has some very heavy male gaze in this mil- film oh, a lot. Oh, my goodness, yes. A lot. And I don't know if it's... I doubt it's intentional because it seems like just something that he intentional and that it means something besides just being the male gaze but i think that would be uh, an interesting study to see you know you have carrie white's mom who's saying oh the world is sin and sex is sin and all the world is dirty and gross and then we we actually get more evidence to support her hypothesis that the world, you know, cause we're always getting these sexualized shots of ladies jumping around in short shorts and their boobs are flying everywhere and all this stuff of like doing jumping jacks for, you know, longer than should be. And, and so just like things like that, where it, you're she carries, carries mom is almost getting proven right. Like almost every step of the way it's like, yeah, we're doing, they're doing this to make fun of you and you know, all these things. And, and then the, and it's sad that the message, I think that's maybe that what makes it the tragedy is that at the end of the day, you know, Carrie White died believing that her mother was right. Yeah. 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 And that is very, very sad. Uh, again, in the, the sort of 70s softcore porn shoot <laughs> yeah. that is that locker room. I mean, that's an intentional choice. And Laura Mulvey's male gaze uh, essay existed at this point. And so, and uh, De Palma is one of the filmmakers that is sort of the one of those film theory era filmmakers and is aware of what that is and what that's about and is aware of that sort of reading of alfred hitchcock uh as a huge hitchcock nerd himself and so he is doing something with it i don't know what it is because honestly it just makes me feel icky and so i for me that's kind of a misfire on his part because i do think he's commenting on that but in the end i think he does sort of make piper laurie's point which is probably not a great idea yeah um to be doing there now the other thing you mentioned arthur is uh hitchcock and suspense uh we got to talk about that prom sequence uh the way in which uh sue looks at the rope finds the rope looks at the bucket traces the rope makes icon i mean that little section i mean the whole sequence itself of the prom sequence is what 25 minutes 30 minutes of the whole movie yeah probably 20 i think i mean it's huge yeah. in, in terms of runtime but it's probably 15 minutes of sue watching a rope and then finally tracing down to that silhouette uh down below this is textbook suspense right yeah i it, mean it's great well it's, the, it's what uh, it's what Hitch talked about is the, putting the bomb under the table, right? And it's the difference between thrill and suspense. You know, if you uh, put your characters uh, down at a table and all of a sudden it explodes, you know, that's a thrill. There's, you know, no lead up to it. But if you have uh, the viewer see the bomb planted and see the five-minute timer and then as the audience, we're there uh, with a clue that the uh, the characters don't have. And so that's what we get here. That That bucket of blood is the bomb under the table. And we just watch it build for 15 minutes as as we hope that someone will get a clue uh, that something terrible is about to happen. Yeah, it is really, really amazing. I love that. And then, of course, once we sort of get there, we arrive at that climax, we get into these great uh, split screenshots. And uh, what do you guys think about I, I have a theory on the split screen, but what do you got? What did you guys think about? Did they work or not work? Or did you think they were effective? Were they hokey, cheesy? I'm just curious what you guys thought about them as you saw them. Yeah, I honestly, I felt like they worked, but they just, I I mean, again, because I certainly hadn't seen that particular part, piece of the prom sequence. So it's just like, I was actually a little surprised, but it, 
it, it was it was so different i don't know what it's doing or why it's doing it but it's like i it's so different it it works really well and it does a good job i guess at separating this feels so different than the rest of the movie and it's like another way of punching that up like punching up that this is you know the shit is unleashed you know um but yeah i, I thought it worked i don't think it's cheesy anyway um there's something and also something feels genuine about it it, it, it fits for me at least I, I think I know it's something De Palma loves because I know he uses it several times before and after uh, in varying links and for varying various reasons. I, I I think part of it is to again help with just kind of the tension and the horror to show us the full uh, picture of what is happening in this room. You know, in, in Sisters when he does it, I think it's to help ramp up the suspense as we're seeing multiple pieces of the puzzle moving at once. And here I think it's more to just show off. Uh, the entire scope of the situation in, in, in one instance where he's not able to do so, you know, with the full view of the room, he's able to kind of focus in on specific areas. Um, I do think it works. I, I think it's just an interesting technique because you don't see it that often. And, and and for me, it works just almost of the novelty of it, of seeing it. I, I think it's pulled off well. I, I do appreciate that use, and I think it's an interesting tick for him to use. But I, I, I was curious to know because I <laughs> – uh, it's not knocking to palm, but I don't know that he has original bone in his body, That's and so fair. I don't know if that where that comes from because I feel like he's pulling it from somebody. Riffing, yeah, yeah, and I have an, I have an idea, and I didn't do any research to find out where he brought that from. But what the the device does, I think, for me as I watch it, is it does give it a, a sense of simultaneity, right? That these events are happening at the same time, and that the camera can't be in both places at once. And you and you want to know that as the you know the hose is being telekinetically moved, also this door is closing on you know some of these really broy guys who need to get crushed in a doorway for being such terrible terrible guys for being bros for being bros yeah if you're if, you, if you're too bro you deserve to die that's what the that's what this movie says and i stand by that message um but so it's showing some of that simultaneity but in 1974 75 76 uh the period of this film uh is the uh sort of uh, relaxation of the comic book code regarding horror comics before that it's only those ec titles that you see the creepies the eeries and uh, those kind of comics and then marvel is dropping lots and lots of horror titles, and it felt very, very comic booky to me in the way in which this is how a lot of kids were getting their sort of horror content was through the comic book, and it was a way of using that particular graphic style with gutters and different frames to give you that sense of si simultaneity. That it felt very, very influenced by uh, contemporary horror comics of the time, like you might find like a Tomb of Dracula or a Vampirella, or um, again uh, even a creepier or eerie comic, which are still um, sort of a throwback from the 50s tales from the crypt tales from the yeah. crypt yeah those kind of things and so it really had gave, gave that sense of this really kind of pulpy kind of comic book you know intertextuality um and and so i don't know if that's what he was going for when he was using it in this particular case uh sisters is another movie that uses some of the same kind of thing but less for less horror effects and more just that this is what's going on yeah. across the way in this apartment this is what's going on in this apartment yeah. as they are looking across uh, a street towards one another but it does a similar kind of thing and so I don't know that it's a comic book influence, but it feels like it is to me. So that's my theoretical suggestion on Brian De Palma, I guess. Yeah, um, I'm into it. So uh, I guess uh, lastly, uh, we ought to talk about the fact is, you know, womanhood is dangerous. Yeah. Because, I mean, that is the biggie on the eye chart. And, you know, that's, again, that's typically what I end up starting with. So she gets her period and she gets to be, um, well, she can kill everybody now. Um, what do we got to say about that? What is is this movie misogynist? Because it, it feels like it doesn't want to be, but does so anyway to me. Well, I mean, it goes back to the whole idea that at the end of the film, like Carrie, like uh, her mother's thesis is like a kind of proven right in a yeah. sense. It's like, again, woman is dangerous, like is kind of the sub message that she's also delivering, even though it has like this really weird Christian bent to it. Um, and like, I, I know that that's kind of, it's almost like a trope now and, you know, not even just within film, but also within like, um, comic books and within, um, you know, like actual studies on like, you know, Carrie pulls this book about telekinesis and it's like, usually when the hormones start kicking, the weird shit starts happening. And, you know, some, uh, there's this, there's this anime that I started watching called Fooly Cooly and the, basically it's about, there's a guy starts experiencing the first vestiges in middle school of, um, 
like getting that the male evolution of right. sexual uh identity and all that stuff and so then weird stuff starts happening and you know there's all these unintentionally but obvious like you know phallic type of like imagery within the background and you know also told within like this kind of anime fantastical lens so it's again it's going back to the idea that you know whenever you're a teenager and your hormones it's just like how to can how to uh, deal with a body that's changing right. and how you react to that and adapt to that. Um, and it's interesting that I feel like more, more often than not, the female version of those stories are like, she brings fire and brimstone upon, you know, everyone. It's like, you know, she's a woman unhinged because, you know, I don't know, because she's empowered or because she's accepting that she is a, a woman with sexual identity, even though she hasn't, um, experienced the act of sex itself. Um, yeah, it's really interesting stuff. Yeah, because when a dude has that, he becomes an X-Man. Yeah, right. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and, and when a girl does, she becomes uh, accused of being a witch, and she massacres a bunch of teenagers and right. teachers. Right, yeah. It's like burn the witch, like straight up, you know? Um, yeah. Yeah, and so, I, like I said, I, I don't know if there's a textual problem, because I was thinking about the novel a little bit, because it does feel like it's very sympathetic to Carrie, that it is it is this sad, sad, tragic story, and there is a sense, in, uh, a much deeper sense, I think, in the novel, in which Carrie is getting her revenge, and it's about bullies, that that we, we sort of use sort of standard tropological kind of stuff, like, okay, so the powers come with the hormones, your body changes, and that's how suddenly you had powers that you didn't have, because you're kind of a different person, you're like you two. 2.0 right when when puberty comes and you know there's a biological truth to that uh but it does sort of slide very easily into those sort of misogynistic kind of things but it becomes much more about bullies suck and wouldn't it be great to have this great revenge story where all the bullies get locked up and burnt right and there there's a sense in which uh 14 year old dustin continues to punch the air when he watches this movie right oh yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah i mean if if you're yeah. if you're if you're not you're probably lying <laughs> to yourself a little bit <laughs> when when she rolls chris's car and it explodes in flames i'm like that's right sucker you know <laughs> and, and that's not a really good the catharsis. thing catharsis yes yeah no. the catharsis is i mean regardless of you feeling bad afterwards for that initial cheer like i mean you can't you can't not admit how cathartic it feels whenever she gets they they get their just desserts <laughs> But in the hands of De Palma, the film, though, because of the length of time that we spend with the plug it up sequence, the length of time that we spend with, again, these super male gazy kind of things, the length of those monologues by Piper Laurie and the way in which femininity is continually vilified throughout the throughout the film. It actually and then all that stuff is in the source material. But the amount of time devoted towards it, I think, has the negative effect of it becomes something more of a, uh, a pro misogyny text uh and and I, I feel like that's where i end up landing uh with carrie so uh, what, what do you guys think am i am i totally off base or would you say it's a bit more empowering than i'm suggesting i i mean, speaking as a man <laughs> yeah, you go for I, yeah it. I mean i just i I, agree. I don't know that it is that empowering i don't i mean am i is that off base i mean no i mean that's that's the thing is there the yeah because the payout like if you really think about it like that i mean how much of carrie's life and you're building up to this sequence that you know is going to happen um and we like we sit on our edge of our seat watching that blood bucket situation Mm -hmm. almost happen um you know i I don't know if he's like obviously i don't think it's really all that intentional for him to be like for them to have that that happen uh, but it it certainly isn't the the most empowering film i've i've watched because yeah. at the end of the day i mean it does kind of take her agency away from her i mean it certainly i actually cannot remember how cuz i know she, in the book she like burns down half the town if not all of it and then yes. she goes to the house and i can't remember what happens with her and the mom i, I mean i think it's like the film she tr- the mom tries to kill her yeah okay and, and then yeah. carrie kills her and then is 
filled with regret. Yeah. And like, and there's a long section of her, I murdered my mother, and 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 yeah. and, and just I'm wrong. I, I did everything wrong. You I, know. I know she leaves. I know she does kill Chris and. The Travolta character. I know yeah. they die after they try to run her off the road or whatever. Uh, but I know she – I think she makes it to a field or something and she's dying. Mm-hmm. And Sue shows that up to kind of comfort her in yeah. her, her time of need. Oh, yeah. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Sue in this one, it's interesting. It's like even though – I mean, sure, she, if you want to use like kind of like a sin perspective, the idea that, yeah, she did still partake or at least didn't stop the plug it up sequence. So she is reaping – what she sowed there even though she was constantly trying to fix that and if you want to put that christian metaphor over it's like the idea that you you can never quote make it up to the higher power you just have to like absolve yourself and be washing the blood and <laughs> washing the blood right. and then uh you know and then move on with your life even though there will be consequences so that's kind of where she's at is you know she kind of had to do this like fake absolute not fake absolution but stuff that isn't like, if you're looking at, uh, like, a biblical text from, like, a Protestant point of view, you don't have to say, like, 18 Hail Marys or anything kind of mm-hmm. like that. Like, self-flagellation, you you accept it, accept the consequences, and but then, like... Yeah. Try to be a better person. Exactly. No, in the I, future. I, I didn't give it that particular theological reading. That's interesting, Alex, because when I, I saw Sue's character, I saw it as your silence is the same as endorsement. Totally, and Even yeah. though you may not be an active participant by standing by and not standing up, you have endorsed the action. Yeah. And yeah. I think that – and that I would also agree is true. It's just that because of her guilt over the situation, yeah. she's trying to, quote, pay it back. Yeah. You know, right. by trying to be better, and then it's like, no, you were bad, and now you're going to reap that. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and, and I, mean, there, I mean, that's not even a necessarily Christian truism that you reap what you sow. That may be a text in the Bible, but you find that within Islam and Buddhism. You find that. Oh, totally, karma. yeah, yeah. See, it's yeah. just karma, yeah. I mean, yeah, religious well, ethics. Causality yeah. is a thing. Uh, so, well, all right, that's fun times. Uh, anything yeah. else just uh, burning on your minds, guys, before we move on to our last section? Um, I'm trying to remember. I feel like uh, doing male gaze, um, boobs, uh... Let's see. Um, yeah, I, I found it really interesting. It's like they picked they picked a pig. Yes. Yeah, they picked a pig. It's pig's blood specifically. Right. And I think it's just because of its uncleanness. Totally. Right? And this, know, this and I think this goes back to uh, a, a deuterocanonical uh, story uh, in the uh, the books of Maccabees. Uh, one of the uh, one of the times when uh, one of the several armies that came marching through and conquering. Uh, Israel, Jerusalem, at the time, one came in and offered pig's blood on the altar in order to defile it, which is what brought about this sort of one of the, the Maccabean revolts from Judas Maccabees. And uh, so th- there, there, there's a long sort of religious tradition of the uh, corrupted sacrifice and to use it as an aspect of defilement, right? And which goes on to that idea of the, the period itself as a time of defilement, you know? Yeah, and, and I mean, and I know like with um, Judaism and certain sex within judaism you know the, the cleansing houses and you know the practices regarding like sex on period if yeah there's like a lot of that stuff yeah. too that isn't carried over into christian faiths um which i find really interesting yeah and that's that's a whole nother hermeneutic yeah conversation. yeah but the idea that it, it is the ultimate of defilement right as opposed to like the blood of the lamb you know being dumped on her or, or even something else like a cow you know it's it, it is the worst kind of blood you could possibly use in, in a religious context which is pig's blood so good stuff good stuff well there you go dear listener we've had a good time talking carrie yeah. with you all we now come to the point of the show we must render a verdict shelf or trash else or instead i myself am conflicted so i'm i'm interested to hear what my co-hosts say because it might help me make up my mind so i'm going to go to you first arthur uh and say <laughs> shelf or trash else or instead what do you think i i think for its kind of significance within the genre and and its influence i mean it is a, that prom sequence has become very influential i watched i've been watching ap bio uh, which is a sitcom on nbc and, and their season finale uh revolved around the carry plot like it is integral to that and so i mean it is uh often quoted and, and I, I i think it is a good movie i think it is an enjoyable horror film uh, so i'm gonna shelf it uh, and i think uh with it you would watch uh you got to watch Psycho. Um, this yeah. movie is calling back to Psycho uh, with the score. 
uh, with the uh, the town is I think named Bates. Uh, they go to the Bates. Uh, yeah, it is uh, named the, Bates. The school, uh, and and there are a lot of connections between uh, Norman Bates and Carrie White, uh, the kind of overbearing mother figure in their life, uh, and, and how it has shaped them as a uh, person. Uh, so I think Psycho is one you put with it. Uh, also watch a. Uh, film from Norway called Thelma, uh, which I watched earlier this week, I and I recommend it to the group. Tell uh, me more. It came out, I believe, in 2017, uh, but picture Carrie, uh, but she's made it out of her hometown, and she's gone off to college, and then she discovers her powers, uh, and they nice. are not shaped by evil. Um, they are shaped just out of confusion uh, for uh, the things she is encountering and the life she's encountering. But a lot of that religious stuff is still there. She comes from a Christian background. Uh, and so it's playing with a lot of those same ideas. Uh, and I think it makes an interesting pairing uh, with Carrie. Uh, I would also say if you're looking at the purity ring thing, uh, like Alex mentioned, I would recommend Teeth. Um, nice. If you've never seen that, it, it's playing with a lot of those ideas based really out of that. World's most frightening chastity belt. Yes. Uh, and so I would go with that. And then finally, if you just uh, want a series that really handles uh, puberty very well, you've got to watch Netflix's Big Mouth, uh, which is just very endearing. Uh, but it, it's probably one of the best, I think, takes on puberty and those challenges uh, that teens go through. And it's it's handled in a very raunchy way, but it's also a very beautiful and endearing way. And I, I really like that show quite a bit. Nice. I like that very much, Mr. Arthur Gordon. Ms. Alexander Bohannon, what say you? Shelf or trash? Else or instead revolving around Carrie? Um, I would say shelf for similar reasons that Arthur cites. I mean, overall, it is like if you're just looking, if it's just you're sitting back and watching it, I mean, definitely it's shelfable. It's it's well made. And like the, the, the cinematography is really exceptional in points where it's not just lingering on people's boobs. But, you know, it's just like there's some really great stuff going on. Um, small quibbles aside, I think it's definitely worth your time. Um, I'm going to say first shelf of the top. Uh, my uh, else as a top of the, my list is Suspiria. Dar Argento's nice. Suspiria. I got a uh, one of the 4K restoration Blu-rays of it. It is beautiful. That prom sequence. It's the entire movie. It's amazing. All the colors, the colors and the blood and the weird. So weird. Love it. It's amazing. Uh, that's uh, that movie's so good. And just like an, again, like the the score on this film uh, on Carrie, I think it it does it does some really weird stuff at times, but then it's palatable. Uh, Suspiria just go leans all into the weird with the atmospheric like screeching anxious noises and i i just it's great i really really deeply enjoy that film um i would also recommend to you uh this the show i cited earlier it's an anime called fooly cooly uh it's a six episode anime i've only watched half of it but basically just a kid dealing with puberty and the fact that now he can like summon aliens out of his head and but it's you know it's all a met giant metaphor for uh for puberty and, uh, you know, sexual discovery, honestly. Um, and so that's a really uh, interesting pick. And then I, you know, why not? I love uh, fucked up ballerina stories. So why not the red shoes as well? Uh, nice. Because, you know, the again, the colors and then, you know, you know, people, ballerinas really have a hard, a hard road to hoe uh, in film because usually their stories are tragic and end with them dying and probably going crazy. Um, so definitely uh, that if you want to just kind of keep the tension ratchet train going so those would be my my picks i love how much you love the red shoes i really it, love it, that movie <laughs> it makes me very very happy so I, good i am also gonna say shelf because i think you need to have access to it i think you, i mean it's available currently on the hulu but you never know when it's gonna drop off and it is a movie that is important it is a movie that is worth revisiting it is a movie if you are into cinephilia if you are into this thing called the cinema and you want to understand it it is part of the vernacular and part of the conversation. You must see it, and I think you must have it because you need to be able to refresh yourself on bits and pieces uh, from time to time. So I'm going to go ahead and, as you guys have said, uh, you, you've convinced me. Uh, we're going to go ahead and go with it. Um, I was thinking Suspiria as well, but uh, since you already said Suspiria, I'm going to put together a quadruple bill with your Suspiria Ooh. and Carrie. So the first two films that you ought to watch are uh, Dario Argento's Suspiria and then go follow it up with Inferno then watch Carrie 
and then watch Rob Zombie's The Lords of Salem. Oh, uh, and oh, that's uh, fun. That's a quadrilogy of yeah. Witchy, witchy see, I was stuff. trying to get, and I was like, I mean, I need to pick that kind of rounds out the idea. You know, it's like that that takes the witch. Uh, yeah, there's that movie is crazy. It's insane. I and, know. And color palette wise, I think it's very very you know sort of similar in many many ways. And so yeah, and when I get to make a Rob Zombie pick, you know, I'm definitely going to do that. So uh, there you go, dear listener. The you're still has just got longer. Those are our recommends. We're so glad you tuned in here at the Good Trash Genrecast because we love talking movies. And I hear we're going to do one more show. Yeah, sadly, Dustin. I know you're wanting to get away from <laughs> okay. it all, but we are going to do one more. One more show. What are we going to do next? Well, I don't know if the dear listener knows this, but uh, before we all made it to college together, we were all uh, trapped in this kind of place out of time. We were. Um, but we, we discovered that there was a modern society outside of that. Uh, we used to be Amish. We were. Uh, no electricity, buggies, carts, every, uh, you know, Weird Al on repeat. Uh, it was a good time. My beard was great. It was. It was phenomenal. Uh, it's the most beautiful uh, I, I can't even describe Great it. Great big bushy beard. <laughs> Flowing black locks out of my face. Uh, so next week, uh, we're going to bring you a show of suspense and thrills, and I guarantee you there will be a twist as we look at M. Night Shyamalan's The Village. It's going to be good ah. times. I think it's going to be a full house, too, uh, recording. So uh, stay tuned for that because we're going to have a good time talking about The Village. And uh, you keep watching, we'll keep talking, and we'll see you all next, next time. time. It's there listener thanks for tuning in uh our intro music as always done by mr aaron rogers and our outro music this week it's my party by leslie gore 